Uh, Professor Spohn is Chair of uh, Philosophy and Philosophy of Science at Constance University in Germany. Um, before that, he was Chair of Philosophy of Science in Bielefeld and Chair in Philosophy at Regensburg. Um, he's one of the leading figures in analytic philosophy of science, and I think it's fair to say that he's inspired a generation of philosophers, both in Germany and more widely, uh, and has played, to my mind, a, a very significant role in the flourishing of analytic philosophy in Europe over the last past 10, 20 years or so. Um, the award that will be made today is for his book on the laws of belief, which is also going to be the basis for his lecture today. Um, the book draws on the very substantial uh, body of work that uh, he's uh, produced over the, over the period of his career, um, but we won't get all of it today. We only have one hour, sadly. Um, and so tonight's lecture will be on just one very small topic, truth and rationality, which uh, you should be able to deal with in 45 minutes or so. 46. <laughs> 46, 46 minutes we'll be dealing with truth and rationality, and then if there are any small matters of detail to clear up, we can do that in, in the question time. Um, so uh, 46 minutes is uh, all, you, all you're getting, so I won't cut into it any longer. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Professor Wolfgang Spohn to give the Lakatosh Award. Thank you very much, Richard, for your kind words. Uh, 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 so, no, okay, that's, that's another microphone that works, no? That's the microphone that works. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and the technique works as well. Okay. Very good. Uh, Don't wonder so, too yeah. Thanks again for uh, your introductory words. <coughs> I'm deeply moved by this event. However, I'm allowed to express my emotions only afterwards. So for the moment, I'm trying to behave businesslike. And part of the business is that I have to back your pardon for the many English imperfections in my lecture. When my English corrector returned my book manuscript to me, I was quite shocked. He had found not two, but rather ten mistakes and imperfections on every page, so I fear this won't improve anymore. Um, let me also say that I fear that it's rather this book. That, that was somewhere, wasn't it? Uh, um, this book does, that will be distinguished here. Somehow the book has acquired an independent existence by now, and it is as if I were acting here only as its representative. You may well wonder, uh, what's the mystery of this book? <clears throat> uh, so you have mentioned some points. Uh, let me emphasize three, just three points about my own book. The plain answer is, it delivers the first full-fledged dynamic theory of belief. As such, it grew up to a legitimate sister of probability theory. And if belief is something philosophically important, as it obviously is, then this book is apparently so as well. I shall exemplify this later on in my lecture. However, let me first add two better hidden answers. One key passage is on page 8, where the book says, In my view... Philosophy tends to do far too much meta-theorizing. It tends to discuss shapes, statuses, and relations of merely imagined theories. In the absence of actual theories, there may be nothing better to do. 
However, my emphatic preference is to engage in actual theory construction and to discuss virtues of actual theories. Actuality is the best proof of possibility. This is what I want to do in this book. So I take the book to be a big piece of constructive philosophy, and I take the award to encourage this attitude. I fear this remark has turned you down. It sounds as if the book would be artists reading, and so it is. <clears throat> However, the other hidden answer may raise your curiosity. David Hume <clears throat> is nowadays, nowadays the historic figure about most highly estimated in analytic philosophy. This was not always so. When you look at 19th century philosophy in Germany, then Hume was taken to be a superficial psychologist, whereas only Kant has fathomed the full depths of philosophy. Tables have turned. Today, Hume counts as a paradigm of relative philosophical clarity, and his mysteries, which doubtlessly exist, are not his failures, but our genuine philosophical challenges. Whereas with Kant, it now seems never quite clear whether his philosophy or the objective philosophical problem is the trouble, though this attitude is not quite fair towards Kant, probably. But what about Hume's mysteries? How much progress have we made there? I confess, I feel as a perfect Humean, and I think that the book explicates, updates, and defends Hume's views on induction and causation more stringently than any other book I know. For instance, on page, the last quote for myself, for instance, on page 331, we find, quote, I'm claiming that what we a priori know about dispositions or forces is that they move our rational minds. This sounds very humane, if not crazily so, end of quote. However, the book makes precise positive sense of this. So the prospect of getting explained you may lure you into reading that book. Alas, you have to read up to chapter 15 in order to complete the explanation. <clears throat> in this lecture, I would like to move to the last chapter 17 and tell you my version of what may be the deepest connection in theoretical philosophy. But I should, I should use that thing. So we, have, we skipped the abstract. We have the, had the three remarks, and now I'm paying attention to that. <clears throat> so... <clears throat> In this lecture, I would like to tell you my version of what may be the deepest connection in theoretical philosophy, that between truth and rationality. Many able men have tackled this topic. Indeed, the first lesson about philosophy is that it is a Sisyphus task. If you are gifted and lucky, you roll the stone up the mountain near to where your fathers did, or a little bit besides, or even a little bit farther. It's not really important how far you get, Important is to keep the stone rolling so that your sons may try more easily on a better prepared path. And if my speech uses the male idiom, it includes mothers and daughters all the more emphatically. <clears throat> What's truth? What's truth? Clearly something most important. <clears throat> if we did not conceive ourselves as truth seekers, we would miss a central human dimension. For instance, we could close down our universities. And when we seek the truth, we seek, <coughs> we seek something uh, objective that we can share and debate. If truth were only subjective, truth for you and truth for me, there would be nothing to share and to debate. 
However, what is it what we are seeking there? Its content seems elusive. The classical quote is from Aristotle's Metaphysics, which is partially borrowed from Plato's Sophist. It says, quote, To say of what is is that it is not, or of what is not that it is, is false. While to say of what is that it is, and of what is not that it is not, is true. This is the famous correspondence theory, which says that truth is assigned to our thoughts, beliefs, or claims if they agree with the facts. This sounds trivial, it is trivial, but it's almost the only game in town. <clears throat> After the correspondence theory remained trepated for 2,000 years, it was first turned into a proper theoretical enterprise by Tarski's semantic theory of truth. You would be surprised to see how many fine distinctions philosophers have developed in the meantime. <clears throat> how many slight variants of that platitude and how many subtle arguments for and against the variants. I'm far from belittling all those attempts. They form a fascinating cosmos, at least for those like me who can feel the fascination. However, if you look at them from some distance, they may appear like idle play. There are all those ontological categories, assertions, sentences, beliefs, contents, propositions, states of affairs, facts, even events, even tropes, and so forth. All these categories may and should be distinguished, but somehow they all seem to mutually correspond in virtue of the fact that they all are identified by propositional complements, the assertion that P, the sentence P, the belief that P, the proposition that P, the fact that P, the event of P-ing, and so on. We seem to move here within a linguistic switching yard, and it's certainly instructive to study all the switched, but we seem to gain not much ground by doing so. The core deficit of all those variants of the correspondence theory of truth is their complete epistemological barrenness. We had hoped that truth theories give us guidance in finding the truth, or at least in certifying when we possess the truth. This is our need. However, correspondence theories give us nothing of that sort. Already Barclay has ridiculed the correspondence theory by remarking that only ideas are similar to ideas. We are caught within our ideas and can compare them only with further ideas and not with the external facts themselves. That is, you can, of course, compare my beliefs with the external world and judge whether I'm right or wrong. Therefore, one might say that the correspondence theory grasps truth from an ontological or third-person perspective. Now, it is certainly helpful when you tell me whether I am right or wrong. However, from my point of view, this is just another opinion that I should take into account. And how much it counts is up to my assessment. When I seek epistemological advice from truth theories, I look for a truth theory from the epistemological or first-person perspective. Moreover, we are all sitting in one boat. External views on us are healthy, but in the end, the first-person perspective is not an individual, but the collective perspective of humanity. We need a truth theory filling this perspective. <clears throat> the hard-boiled correspondence theorist thinks that we are seeking a chimera, 
Still, many respectable men have undertaken this search. They meet a need, and they can't be all wrong. However, when we follow them, we sink into a morass. <clears throat> In the post-Wittgenstein era, people looked for a criterion of truth that should help us deciding about the truth. Criteria were not definitions, but almost there were reasons that cannot be trumped. Today, criteria are outmoded. People seem to have given up on them. Still earlier, <clears throat> there was the coherence theory of truth vigorously discussed among the logical positivists and apparently by the German and the British idealists. The truth criterion, to use this word, should somehow lie in the coherence of a belief with other true beliefs. No doubt our judgment formation is importantly guided by coherence considerations. However, at the old times, the program founded at the impossibility of more precisely grasping the notion of coherence. And in my view, this situation has not basically changed. The notion of coherence does not seem to be suited as a theoretical key to truth. There's another theory, still older than the logical positivists, namely Charles Sanders Peirce's so-called pragmatic theory of truth. It attempts to state a close relation between belief and truth and seems thus suited to inform the epistemological first-person perspective. Its central notion is the limit of inquiry. We do science for many centuries. We explore the world ever more extensively and intensively at new places in new dimensions and with refined methods uh, with ever-refined methods and theories. Of course, we have thus explored only a minute part of the universe, but imagine that we carry on this process indefinitely until we have investigated absolutely, absolutely everything. This is an extremely counterfactual assumption for sure. <clears throat> Mankind will remain parochial and goes extinct it is even physically entirely impossible to get very far with this investigation, and it is impossible to carry out any investigation without change in the universe, though we usually pretend that our observations do not influence the universe, uh, do not influence the observed. Still, we are very familiar with what is supposed to get carried to a limit. This limit is not so alien. In the limit, our beliefs cover everything. Are they true? We may still cultivate our skepticism, but this would definitely be mere paper doubt. There remains no skeptical gap. There's no experience and no consideration left that could prove us wrong. Hence, they must be true. At least we are perfectly justified in calling them true in the specific sense of perfection reachable only in this limit. Or to express it in my favorite slogan, after the exhaustions of all reasons, our beliefs must be true. <clears throat> this is my phrasing of the pragmatic theory of truth. In his essay, How to Make Our Ideas Clear, Peirce puts it in the following succinct way, quote, the opinion which is fated to be ultimately agreed to by all who investigate is what we mean by the truth. And the object represented in this opinion is the real. That is the way I would explain reality, end of quote. The pragmatic tradition is still strong in American philosophy. In his penultimate period, Hilary Putnam was an ardent defender of pragmatic, or as he called it, internal truth. His still shorter slogan was, 
The idea theory must be true. Where the idea theory is the one reached in that counterfactual limit of inquiry. So far, so good. The pragmatic theory of truth sounds attractive, if not convincing. However, I had dismissed the coherence theory as quite hopeless. Is the pragmatic theory any better? It sounds quite obscure. Indeed, this is the most salient difference to the correspondence theory. After its awakening through Tarski, the latter meets all standards of rigorous theorizing. The switching yard, as I called it, is basically under our strict conceptual control. Quite the opposite is true of the pragmatic theory up to the present days, so much so that the opponents may well doubt that we are dealing with any theory of truth at all. In the rest of my lecture, I would like to defend the view that the pragmatic theory really offers a second notion of truth that is, to some extent, amenable to rigorous theorizing. I emphasize a second notion. This entails that I fully accept correspondence, the correspondence theory or some of its variants. It also entails that there are indeed two notions of truth. I'm serious about the epistemological first person and the ontological third person perspective. Each has its own notion of truth. I mean, by the way, sometimes I feel I'm too far away from the microphone, but everybody, well, okay, okay. So, just one remark as an aside to the philosophical insiders. Two-dimensional semantics, which I fully endorse, has taught us that there are two kinds of intentions with an S, horizontal and diagonal, or C and A intentions. Correspondence theory, correspondence truth, pertains to horizontal intentions, and pragmatic truth pertains to diagonal intentions. And then the term true has a two-dimensional meaning by itself, with a horizontal intention determined by the correspondence theory and a diagonal intention determined by the pragmatic theory, so that the two theories are united within one two-dimensional scheme. I think. These are only programmatic hints pointing to the larger picture behind my lecture. But let me return to pragmatic truth by itself. As explained so far, it is not yet fit for that larger picture. We must try to develop it more precisely. <clears throat> the starting point seems quite obvious. If we want to understand the limit of inquiry, we need to understand our motion approaching that limit. That is the dynamics of our belief or judgment formation. Indeed, the rational dynamics, how it ought to rationally move, not the actual dynamics with all its a and irrational influences and restrictions, such as forgetfulness, stubbornness, and so on. Saying this already gives a sense of how our two key terms, truth and rationality, may come together. The task is to unfold this connection. <clears throat> Strangely, uh, the dynamic perspective on our beliefs is not so old. Early philosophy of science, with its emphasis on confirmation or corroboration, that is, on the context of justification and its neglect of the context of discovery, had quite a static perspective. The situation dramatically changed with Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions. However, Kuhn thereby offered only a descriptive picture of the dynamics of science. And it remained a mystery whether there might be... Wait a minute. Uh, here, yeah. uh, 
and it remained a mystery whether there might be any rationality in that picture. One of the lasting merits of Imre Lakatos is that he was about the first to make constructive proposals at this point. Ever since, theory change has remained an important topic in philosophy of science. I should admit, though, that there is a much older probabilistic treatment of epistemic change, which goes back to the 18th century, namely simply Bayes' theorem, which is used everywhere, and which infers posterior probabilities from prior probabilities and likelihoods. However, both strands of thought are not well suited for our purposes. Probabilistic epistemology proceeds on a fundamental theoretical level, which is just the right one for such a foundational topic as ours, and it provides a fully developed dynamical account. The basic problem, though, is there are no beliefs according to probabilistic epistemology. No subjective probability amounts to a belief. In probabilistic terms, you always take things to be more or less probable, but never to be true or false. This fundamental failure is the ultimate cause of my entire book, and it makes probabilistic epistemology unsuited for pursuing the pragmatic theory of truth. My discontent with the post-Kuhnian strand is quite the opposite. This strand proceeds in terms of acceptance and rejection of theories and, or paradigms. This is well in line with talking of belief and disbelief. However, it starts at the wrong end by focusing on scientific theories, which certainly are the most complex objects of our epistemic attitudes. Foundational theorizing may reach, but must not start with such complexities. In this respect, my sympathies go with probability theory. However, the fact that theory change was on the post-Kuhnian agenda strongly stimulated more foundational studies. The field is variegated, but the most prominent paradigm certainly is belief revision theory as established by Carlos Alcoron, Peter Jerdenfors, and David Makinson. This theory has been my direct reference point. Very early I observed that it provides only an incomplete rational dynamics of belief and sought to improve it. The result was ranking theory, which I conceived of in 1982 which is now the content of my book and which indeed delivers, I claim, a full rational dynamics of belief. So I would like to see ranking theory as the present, <coughs> at the present culmination point of the development alluded to. I certainly cannot claim to have returned to the complexities of theory change, of the evolution and revolution of scientific theories, also because there are more problems involved than those of belief change, for instance, the problem of conceptual change. Still, the book says enough, I think, to suggest that those complexities are not out of reach. In any case, the fact that ranking theory provides a full rational dynamics of belief makes it suitable for studying the limiting behavior of that dynamics and thus for substantiating the pragmatic theory of truth. How does it do so? <clears throat> In order to explain this, I have to explain the basics of the dynamics of belief. Of course, this is technical stuff in the end, but I think I can explain the beginnings in very ordinary terms. The fundamental point is this. 
We receive and accept reasons through perception, through asking, listening, and reading, and rationally we change our beliefs in response and only in response to receiving reasons. No belief change without reasons. So much seems to go without saying. However, it merely defers the topic of rational belief change to saying what reasons are. And here we sink into another morass. This is the crucial battlefield of inductive skepticism. Many brave philosophers have fought sacrificially to say what good reasons are and to overcome inductive skepticism. With little success, I find, inductive skepticism is a hydra with many heads. As a good you mean, I propose to simply yield to inductive skepticism. We will see that there are ways to erode it from inside. Yielding to it means making the notion of a reason entirely subject relative. Whether or not the assumption or proposition A is or would be a reason for me for the assumption or proposition B is measured by my subjective epistemic state. To be more precise, A is for me a reason for B if and only if, in my view, A supports B, if A speaks in favor of B, if A makes B more credible to me, that is, if B is more credible to me given A than than under the assumption non-A. I call this the positive relevance notion of a reason. This explication requires several remarks. First, this notion of a reason presupposes that one can meaningfully speak of conditional degrees of belief. This is precisely what ranking theory delivers. It refers to beliefs, but of course, beliefs can be more or less firm, so it also refers to degrees of belief, and it does so in unconditional as well as in conditional terms. Secondly, Reason may thus come in various forms. There are sufficient reasons and necessary reasons, and there are still other increases in degrees of belief. There's moreover negative relevance. A is a reason against B, just in case A is a reason in favor of non-B. Thirdly, this notion of a reason is indeed entirely subjective. What is a reason for what solely depends on my conditional degrees of belief. If my epistemic state changes, my structure of reasons may change as well. There's just as much a dynamics of reasons as there is a dynamics of belief. Fourthly, it is important to distinguish between being a reason and having a reason. Perhaps the phrase A is for me, a reason for B is ambiguous. It may or may not include that I have or possess, that is, believe in the reason A. Given this ambiguity, we may enforce the non-inclusive reading by saying that A would be a reason for me in favor of B. Finally, there's obviously a large intersubjective variance in the possession of reasons, just as in the possession of beliefs. However, there may even be intersubjective variance concerning what would be a reason for what. Just a tiny example. I argue, Mick Jagger really is the greatest pop star on earth. He even pleases the queen. <clears throat> and, you re- and you reply ironically, yes, indeed. 
thus showing that you take the argument precisely the other way around. <clears throat> the history of inductive skepticism has produced more dramatic examples. This indicates the depths of the subject relativity of the notion of a reason. Having this notion <clears throat> of a reason firmly in mind, it comes out as an utter platitude that the rational dynamics of belief is driven by reasons. I haven't told you the rules of rational belief change, but it seems clear that they basically tell you to move to the degrees of belief conditional on the received evidence as posterior unconditional degrees of belief, just as Bayes' theorem tells us to do in the probabilistic case. Hence, I change my degree of belief and possibly my belief in some assumption or proposition B if and only if the received evidence is a reason for or against B. So, you will object that this is really cheap success, that I made it true by definition that reasons drive belief change. Well, yes, uh, but it is at least success which is made possible only by our subject-relative notion of a reason. You will go on asking, what does so subjectively defined belief change deserve, or why does so subjectively defined belief change deserve to be, to be distinguished as rational? This is indeed the crucial question, and I will give a two-step response. The more substantial second step will move us back to the pragmatic theory of truth. The first step consists in the remark that not any distribution of conditional degrees of belief is permissible. Of course, each rational epistemic state containing beliefs must satisfy the basic axioms of ranking theory, and those axioms have extremely strong normative foundations. Besides the definition of conditional ranks, that is, the, of the ranking theoretic kind of degrees of belief, the axioms only require logical consistency of conditional beliefs. You must not believe B as well as non-B given any consistent condition A. If that's not reasonable, I don't know what is. Uh, so these axioms are at least minimal conditions of rationality, which determine the formal behavior of reasons. However, they still allow a lot of unreasonableness we need to take a second step and to inquire into further postulates of rationality, which, of course, have a claim, have an objective claim. This is what I mean by eroding inductive skepticism from inside. Which form could additional postulates take? Well, they must somehow concern the structure of reasons. <clears throat> Note, note that if reasons drive epistemic change, then all our capacities to learn, to form and change beliefs are somehow implicit in the structure of our conditional beliefs and reasons. For instance, if a proposition were epistemically independent of all others, we could not learn anything about it. We could not make any experience about it. This appears unreasonable, and our aim must be to state principles preventing such a situation. This aim has a Kantian ring. I would define as a priori each feature that all rational epistates must have, 
and hence those propositions that all rational epistemic states must believe in. A priority and epistemic rationality fall in one. Hence, if I'm going to explore rational principles of learnability, this is much the same as Kant's search for the famous a priori conditions of the possibility of experience. Of course, I proceed in quite unkantian terms. However, my notion of a priority seems closer to Kant's concerns than the current mainstream literature on a priority, which still tends to ground the a priori only in conceptual relations. Let me be a bit more specific about principles of learnability. We can't learn about propositions a priori. We rationally believe in them anyway, at least when we master the conceptual means for understanding them. By contrast, empirical propositions a posteriori may be true or false and may or may not be rationally believed. Hence, the very first postulate is that a rational epistemic state must be able to learn about any empirical proposition a posteriori. That is, the degree of belief in such a proposition must be changeable or revisable. Indeed, it must be revisable through experience, through evidential or observational propositions. This is our first principle. It is not news, of course. It is a venerable principle maintained by the empiricists of all flavors and through all centuries, though sometimes in, exagger in exaggerated terms of verifiability or falsifiability. I have only added a precise ranking theoretic notion of revisability. Of course, <clears throat> this revisability can obtain only if the structure of reasons is appropriate. And so the basic empiricist principle entails that for each empirical proposition a posteriori, there is at least one inductive reason. In fact, we can prove something stronger, namely, however you split up the set of, a of all a posteriori propositions in two parts, you always find a proposition in one part that is a reason for some proposition in the other part. So this entailed principle asserts something like the unity of science. So far, I have postulated the universal sensitivity to experience or evidential reasons. No dogmatism whatsoever is rationally permissible. However, what's the point of, what's the point of this universal sensitivity and its exploitation in our incessant search for reasons? Getting moved by reason is no intellectual dance without purpose. Reasons should move us in the right direction. Philosophers say that reasons must be truth-conducive. They move us towards the truth. If this would not be the point of reasoning, it would be idle play. This seems as obvious as it is mysterious. Perhaps I haven't studied enough, but I'm not aware of any convincing attempt to establish the truth-conduciveness of reasons. <clears throat> If the aim truth is externally determined by a correspondence theory of truth, and if reasons provide our internal guideline for forming beliefs, then there is no guarantee that external aim and internal guideline are in concordance. The skeptical gap is wide open. 
There's an evolutionary argument. We obviously are pretty, <clears throat> pretty successful creatures, but we couldn't have been so if our reasons had led us astray too often. So apparently our reasons must be quite reliable in detecting the truth. This is as well taken as it was not the answer we were looking for. No such empirical argument can close the skeptical gap. I think it is impossible to do so in terms of the correspondence theory. Things change when we consider, consider the matter strictly from the internal first-person perspective, that is in terms of the pragmatic theory of truth, which refers to the limit of our reason-finding activities. Then the truth conducive of reasons is more than an accidental empirical fact. How precisely might we conceive of that connection? The basic idea of the pragmatic theory was that truth is wherever our reasons lead us in the limit. However, not any possible reasons which may, which may lead us anywhere, but only the reasons we can actually receive in our world, however it may turn out to be. That is, truth is wherever true reasons lead us in the limit. Again, <clears throat> Again, we have to postulate an appropriate sensitivity of our structure of reasons. That is, we should minimally postulate that for each true empirical proposition a posteriori, there's at least one true inductive reason. We might call this the basic principle of pragmatic truth. Note that this principle obviously strengthens the basic empiricist principle that for each proposition there is at least one inductive reason. It adds the leaning towards truth. And again, it is quite obvious. How could a proposition turn out true if there were not a single true reason speaking in its favor? Or in Putnam's terms, how could such a proposition ever become part of the ideal theory? However, the basic principle of pragmatic truth is also pretty trivial. If I were to sell it to you as an exciting insight, you would have every right to be disappointed. That's not the point, though. The point that I find interesting is the status of, the, of that principle of pragmatic truth. Obviously, it is a principle about both truth and rationality and about their relation. Hence, we might perceive it in two ways. <clears throat> it might be conceived as a principle of rationality, strengthening the principles mentioned before. As such, it would be an a priori principle, as explained above. This is how reasons must be structured if we are to be able to detect and to believe in truth. In this perspective, it again contributes to Kant's conditions of the possibility of experience. Or it might be conceived as a principle about truth. Clearly, it cannot serve as a definition of pragmatic truth. It's just a postulate about truth. As such, however, it has a conceptual ring. We do not understand what truth could be if that principle were violated. And so again, it has an a priori status. The best perspective is to see the principle as connecting truth and epistemic rationality. If we want to characterize pragmatic truth, we have to refer to epistemic rationality 
And if we are to explore epistemic rationality, we must not stop with the basic axioms of ranking theory, not with its rules of rational belief change, not even with the basic empiricist principle and its cognates. We can and must strengthen our conception of rationality by reversely referring to the notion of pragmatic truth. If there is a lesson in my lecture, then it is this point about the inevitable interdependence of truth and rationality. I have not seen it so explicitly stated in the literature, even though I'm sure it has been grasped before. And I'm not disturbed by the triviality of the basic principle of pragmatic truth. It is often difficult to distinguish between philosophical debts and platitudes, and one may even see a philosophical task in transforming apparent debts into platitudes. The more important point, though, is that this principle is only the beginning, the beginning of a constructive research program. I have only stated the very first principle, which is obviously quite weak. I believe that it may be strengthened in convincing ways, for instance, through a principle postulating the existence of what I call ultimately stable reasons. The latter then turns out to be provably equivalent to a weak principle of causality. So far, these are global principles. Somewhere in the ocean of all propositions, we always find a reason. However, it should be possible to be more specific and to find more local principles. Our concepts include, to some extent, where to look for reasons for what. If we succeed in this, we should also be able to give more bite to Robert Brandon's so-called inferentialism, After all, his central but quite elusive notion of a material inference seems to find an adequate explication in my notion of a reason. However, I must admit that I have not carried out this localization of the global principles. It's just that it strongly appears feasible to me. In any case, I would like to emphasize if there really is a constructive research program, then it, in virtue of the fact that the notion of a reason finds a precise and theoretically exploitable explication in ranking theory. I hope that in the shortness of time I have well enough explained my central point, the interdependence of truth and rationality. Still, you may doubt that the pragmatic theory deserves to be called a theory of truth of its own. Let me finally briefly address three concerns that are often raised in the literature. First, it has been objected to Putnam that his notion of an ideal theory presupposes the notion of truth. Of course, the ideal theory is the true theory, true in an antecedently given, presumably correspondistic sense. If this were so, the entire approach would be doomed. However, I think that I've made clear that we can avoid any such reference to an antecedently given notion of truth. The ideal theory, if we stick to that term, is characterized within the entanglement of truth and rationality, where truth is taken no other than the pragmatic sense. A second concern is whether the pragmatic stance really offers a theory of truth. Let me explain this briefly. Usually, logic is characterized as stating the basic laws of thought. 
However, Gottlob Frege, the founder of modern logic, reminded us that there is something even more fundamental, namely the laws of truth, from which the laws of thought derive. So, does pragmatic truth really satisfy the laws of truth? The critical issue is disjunction. Epistemically, it is a very common situation that we believe in a disjunction A or B, but have no idea which of the disjuncts A and B obtains. By contrast, a disjunction A or B can only be true if at least one of the disjuncts is true. Truth cannot be unopinionated. More specifically, in epistemic terms, <coughs> no, sorry. More specifically, in epistemic theories such as the pragmatic one, there seems to be a problem about the law of excluded middle, A or not A. Since we may apparently be forever unjustified in asserting A and in asserting non-A. However, as I have explained the pragmatic theory of truth, this consequence does not threaten, or so it seems to me. The basic principle of pragmatic truth postulated that if A is true, there will be true reasons for A, and hence against non-A. This entails that every disjunction will be resolved in the limit. Of course, this very sketchy argument should be carefully checked. <coughs> Finally, <coughs> A notion of truth should be objective in some sense. In the beginning of my lecture, I ridiculed the idea of truth for you and truth for me. However, is the pragmatic theory any better? Why shouldn't your limit of inquiry not widely diverge from my limit? A good question, to which I have only a partial answer. First, I would like to emphasize that if we are to get any objectivity, we need to appeal to the limit of inquiry. At each finite state of inquiry, we may find arbitrary disagreement and arbitrary error. Therefore, no consensus theory of truth will do in any finite time, even if the consensus is reached in free, sovereign, and uncoerced dialogue, as Jürgen Habermas has conceived it. This is so simply because any finite evidence may be misleading, misleading for everyone. This can be different only in that counterfactual limit of inquiry referred to in the pragmatic theory. But is it actually different in, the counter, in that counterfactual limit? Peirce had the idea that objective reality will enforce agreement upon us in the limit. Recall my above quote that truth is fated to be ultimately agreed to by all who investigate. However, this idea may obstruct the pragmatic project. Objective reality may be an ontological explanation of agreement within the external third-person perspective, but the pragmatic theory must attempt to secure it by internal conditions on the epistemological first person in the on, by eternal conditions on the epistemological first-person perspective. Is this feasible? I'm not sure. In the Bayesian context, we have theories about agreement in the limit. That is, we all are so, that is, if we all are so rational to start what people call with the symmetric probability distribution regarding some empirical field governed by some statistical <coughs> law, and if we satisfy some further rationality requirements, 
then evidence will lead us to agree on the right statistical law, however diverging our starting points otherwise. This is what Bruno Definetti's famous representation theorem entails. This theorem can be carried over to ranking theory, though there is at least partial success. I would like to think that it can be generalized far beyond the restricted setting of those theorems. However, this may well be wishful thinking. For today, I have sufficiently rolled around Sisyphus Stone, I think, and you most patiently with me. If you find that at least some paths were useful and not so familiar, I would already be content. Thank you very much for your long attention. Thank you. Okay, well, that was perfectly on time. And if the the audience takes only one lesson from the talk, it should be about time management. (laughs) We have only a a limited amount of time for questions, 20 minutes or so. Um, And there will be, uh, if you want to ask a question, please raise your hand and a microphone will be brought to you. Uh, So if you could restrain yourself until you've got the microphone. And then also try and state your question as concisely and in a form that is truly of a question rather than a declaration, if possible. <laughs> okay, so we're, uh, we can start down that end. Matt. Hello. Um, I'd just like to ask you to expand a bit on the uh, part about uh, whether, the, um, whether the pragmatic um, point of view satisfies the laws of truth. In particular, it seems clear that we have immediate logical reasons to believe a lot of disjunctions, what reason do we have, such as, you know, of the form P or not P, what reason do we have to believe that we'll ever have uh, convergent reasons to believe either one of the disjuncts in all cases? You pinpoint a crucial issue, yeah? uh, and uh, I confess I don't have that in my book, that argument. Yeah? And then uh, when I was thinking about the talk yeah, and how to present that, then I, I thought, well, uh, that, that's a crucial point which I should address. And then I thought about it and I had to have produced that quick argument. Yeah? I mean, the, the point is that every, at every finite stage, of course, yeah, you, you will be uh, unopinionated about many matters. Yeah? Yeah? But then if you carry on, yeah, in the limit, the, that was the claim, because in the limit, uh, you always have a, um, for any truth, you have a true reason. Yeah? So uh, that is, uh, um, as, I, as I said in my talk, uh, any, dis, any uncertainty about any disjunctions will be resolved. Yeah? So uh, the question whether A or not A will be resolved because you will find either a reason for, for A or for non-A. Yeah? In, in the limit, yeah? so uh, in our actual uh, research uh, career, uh, some questions, of co- many questions will remain undecided forever, sure. And of course we are long dead before, dead before we reach the limit of inquiry, we will never reach it. Yeah? So though it's a fiction of course, yeah? but I think uh, uh, that we, as I said, we may well assume that in the limit, each disjunction will be resolved. Uh, I mean, uh, no. Uh, uh, anyway, you can assume about the limit whatever you want, so to speak, because 
it will never be tested. Huh? Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, um, uh, I mean, it, it, okay. Uh, another point is, of course, I have thought through all these things, uh, let's say, in classical terms. Huh? And then there will always be the philosopher of physics who stands up, and how does that uh, to relate to all our quantum theoretic puzzles? Huh? Where we have an uncertainty principle, for instance. Huh? Um, where we have only probabilistic knowledge, huh? and, and we are told that any, any uh, resolution of the merely probabilistic knowledge is impossible. Yeah? So, and really then I confess, I can't tell you, yeah? but uh, in a way I'm happy already enough to, to have moved forward epistemology, epistemology within the classical framework, yeah? uh, where it's also not sufficiently studied. Yeah? And then with these better, better prepared means, then you can check well, how that, does that trans, uh, carry over to all these quantum, difficult quantum cases. Yeah? So, but that would be also an obvious direction of attack. Yeah? That, that does, my talk doesn't well fit to these quantum puzzles. <clears throat> okay, let's take a Hasek. Thank you. Um, I was wondering if you could say a bit more about the notion of credibility that occurs in your positive relevance idea of reason. Uh, more specifically, is it defined in terms of other concepts or is it a primitive notion? And if it is primitive, doesn't that create quite a problem with the objectivity issue? I mean... <laughs> credibility is just degree of belief. Yeah? I mean, the, the more uh, credibility sounds as if it would be uh, would be graded. Yeah? So it's grades of belief. Yeah? And then, um, uh, but as I said, it's not probabilistic degree of belief, but it's the ranking theoretic kind, which also includes the notion of belief. Yeah? Some, uh, so to speak, uh, what is now nowadays called the Lockean thesis. Yeah? Uh, uh, belief is just sufficient degree of belief yeah? that is satisfied by ranking theory. Yeah? Just such sufficient degree of belief is belief. Yeah? You can def uh, explain belief in that way. Yeah? Now, uh, and, and uh, of course, and the, uh, the, the ranking functions uh, which specify your degrees of credibility or of belief, they are basic. Yeah? That's that's the basic concept. Yeah? Um, and it's subjective, sure, um, but it's uh, a question maybe, oh, uh, but there's at least also a measurement theory to those degrees, uh, so you can in a way measure them. Uh, so you, you, I do not expect that you find them introspectively, yeah, but I can, I can measure your degrees of belief. Yeah, but and what's the problem with, with the objectivity? I mean, uh, I said, of course, uh, yeah, what, what's the, what was your concern there? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, they are. I mean, we disagree all the time, um, but we have the rationality postulates. Uh, and then, we, as in probability theory, we, we may have, the, for instance, uh, um, assertions about convergence of opinion. Yeah? And, uh, and I've given one example of that, and, but the, it's an open issue whether that strategy can be extended yeah, to, 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 more, to more general cases. Yeah? But of course, we, we, we disagree all, all the time. We have also inductive disagreement, yeah? but it may be the rationality postulates are such that uh, the disagreements will dissolve in the end. Uh, but as I said, that's an open issue, whether that fully works. Uh. No, but the point, yeah, you, you have to start with the subjectivity. Yeah? Uh, you don't get it. Yeah? I mean, there's no, I think, I firmly believe there's alter, no alternative route to it. Yeah? And that's really the deep, humane lesson we all should have learned. Yeah? <clears throat> Raman? Um, yeah, thanks. Um, I wonder how worried are you about the fact that you reach convergence to objectivity only um, as um, you take a limit for, t um, for t to infinity. So um, that's an awful long time to wait. <laughs> um, so do, um, do you have any view on the convergence speed that this uh, process oh. has and how do we deal with that in sort of practical applications? Because um, you seem to adopt something sort of like a principle of charity and sort of you can reason and there should, should not be any dogmatism and um, we're all entitled to our views. And so it seems that um, unless you wait for infinitely long, you have to live um, with epistemic anarchy. And I wonder how you would um, deal with, with such an anarchy in practical cases. So take creationism or take um, climate change um, deniers. Um, do we have to argue with them till the end of time? Uh, or um, if we want to resolve certain issues a bit faster, how do we do that from your point of view? That's a nice example but where the, where the, uh, the the disagreement is ruining us, yeah, surely, because uh, people wait and wait because they d disagree and can't agree upon anything. Um, but it's not not only a scientific quarrel, of course. It's there. It's, it's massive interests, uh, financial interests, of course, uh, and and habits. Uh, but people simply don't change their habits. Uh, um, uh, that was, but by the way, that was one of I found one of the worst sentences in politics. Uh, old old Bush, uh, no, not the young one, the old Bush. Uh, somewhere somewhere in 1988, he said, "The American way of life is not at disposal," uh, and that was really bad. Um, so, but we are politicizing. <laughs> no, uh, uh, of course, uh, I have no theorem whatsoever about the speed of convergence. Uh, um, and there are, there are hardly any in probability theory. And, and you, you, as an expert, of course, you know the conversion is not uniform, yeah? also in probability theory. Yeah? So if the beginning is wide, uh, uh, sufficiently wide, uh, uh, far away, the, the distance is very far away, the agreement will be very late. Yeah? And uh, it's not uniform, as I say. Yeah? Now, of course, and then, um, but. Uh, 
then we have all, all lots of empirical reasons why our, uh, let's say, our ranking functions are not so different. Our inductive schemes, our inductive procedures are not so different. Uh, I mean, we have all these fancy examples about the, um, the, about those uh, Goodman guys, uh, the Gru guys, who, who think that all admirals are Gru, yeah? uh, uh, and they are the only chances uh, to... Uh, there's no argument with him. We can only wait till we discover that animal, yeah? and then we maybe we agree then. Yeah, uh, um, and there's no no argument. We'll decide the case before that. Yeah, and but we don't meet those people, fortunately. Yeah, uh, 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 it would be very weird. Uh, uh, so now, uh, of course, we are we are raised in the same framework. Uh, and therefore, we may uh, therefore. We will agree much earlier, or most of us will agree, yeah? certainly. Yeah. But do I, as a philosopher, have to study that or make assertions about that? I mean, I thought that agreement comes about much quicker. That's rather an empirical matter which psychologists should study, or, but not philosophers. I don't know. John? Uh, yeah, so the prospect of convergence of opinion seems to vary quite a lot from discipline to discipline. So, for example, in mathematics, there's quite a lot of convergence of opinion. In the empirical sciences, there's less so. And in uh, philosophy, uh, you might argue that there's, <laughs> there's divergence of opinion rather than uh, uh, convergence uh, of yeah. opinion. So, do you think that this means that there's no philosophical truth, or would that be a problem for your argument if, uh, no, if opinion uh, doesn't converge uh, in mean, philosophy? In philosophy, we just roll around stones uh, so, so, uh, and don't do much more. Now, first of all, I should say everything what I've said doesn't apply to mathematical epi- the epistemology of mathematics. Uh, uh, the, whole of ma- the whole of mathematics is just uh, analytically true. Uh, uh, and that's it, in a way. Yeah, so, so, and to say something interesting about that, this is something entirely different. Uh, and so, I, I'm only speaking about empirical truth uh, or a posteriori truth about empirical matters. Uh. That also means that I'm not speaking about philosophical truth. Uh, so, I mean, it's always, I mean, it's a common argument somehow. Whatever philosophical theory you have, it should be self-applicable. Yeah, and if 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 nonsense results yeah, from the self-application, then that's an argument against the philosophical theory. Yeah? and then it must be a bad. Th- I I was never convinced of this type of argument. Yeah? Um, um, no, philosophical truth is. So what's the methodology of philosophy? Yeah? That, that's a very difficult issue. Yeah? Um, uh, I would have said, for instance, I'm very, uh, I am strongly convinced that uh, an important side of philosophy is to make normative claims. Uh? Now, that's obviously not empirical claims. Uh? Often types of argument are similar, but still the methodology of normative discussion is, in the end, a different one. Yeah? So, uh, and then I appeal to, let's say, well, but you, you never accept a contradiction. That would be irrational. Yeah? Even on any assumption, you are not allowed to accept any contradiction. Yeah? So if you give me that, if you agree to that, I wouldn't know how to argue further for that. Yeah? Uh, if you say no, 
I, I accept contradictions, they do no harm, yeah? then I wouldn't know how to, to talk, continue discussing with you. Yeah? But if you give, accept that, then I say, okay, uh, you accept that, then you have to accept the entire book, or, or everything on those 600 pages, yeah? because it's all a consequence of this, this basic assumption. Okay, then I can look at it. So, so that, that's the type of normative argument one can lead. Yeah? But that's very, very different from empirical discussion. So, um, and of course, and that doesn't apply to the whole of philosophy. Yeah? That's, I think, an important part of philosophy, normative theorizing in theoretical matters as well as, of course, in practical matters where it's much more obvious. Yeah? I mean, when we when we are discussing about morals, uh, um, then of course uh, the, the, we are discussing normatively. Yeah? And, and so, but that's a different kind of theory. Yeah? And what I have told you doesn't apply to, to philosophical truth. So. <coughs> Gentleman at the back there. Thank you. Um, when you uh, mentioned Kuhn, uh, you said you didn't want to get into the details of paradigms in operation and the kind of messiness of research programs and so on. But I wasn't quite sure I entirely understood why, really. I mean, if the concept of truth is likely to be, to some extent, uh, steered by whichever paradigm it's in operation within, criteria for okay. truth within different paradigms, I, I would have thought being wholly immersed into the question of research context and the way paradigms develop and concept of truth is used in different sciences in the warp and woof and messiness of life is exactly where you want to be. I mean, the devil's in the detail. And the, the kind of program that the Kuhnians and so on are interested in is, is a, a starting point, not the very general level of abstraction. Uh, I had a hard time understanding that, yeah, because, uh, um, but, but, but still, I mean, what was the point? The point was that we are, normal science at least is immersed in, in a paradigm and doesn't want to move away from the paradigm, so it's just simply working in the paradigm, and why shouldn't we content, be content with that, or... Uh, um, that's a, pardon, I, I simply had... Had difficulties to understand your question. Uh, the concept of truth might might be uh, shaped by whichever paradigm yeah, it's operating yeah, within. Okay. Absolutely critically, criteria for truth, the concept of truth, how you make sense of any of yeah. that. Therefore, yeah. investigating the paradigms is really going to be the starting point. Yeah. The, the, the messy practice of actually doing research is the starting point, rather than the higher level of abstraction. But that was the that was perceived as the irrationality rationality of Kuhn. Yeah? I mean, so if you only have a paradigm relative notion of truth, yeah? so within a given paradigm, this and that is true. Within a given another paradigm, other things are true. And then, uh, <coughs> and there's no comparison between the paradigms. Yeah? So, and that, that's how Kuhn presented himself. Yeah? So he, he's often said throughout the uh, the different scientists in different paradigms, they live in different worlds, yeah? so therefore they can't communicate. But that was precisely what most people found absurd about it. Yeah? So, uh, of course, they have different world pictures, but they are not living in different worlds. It's one world we are living in, and so it's, uh, the, the, the different paradigms must be communicable. Yeah? Um, and then, of course, uh, 
and that's how, and it's not simply that somehow the relative relativity theorists have won the majority by some kind of social war or whatever, but for reasons, uh, uh, and the reasons spoke for that. Yeah. So and then I always think, uh, yeah, uh, and in principle, though, it's not only the local. I mean, in my book, I have always local examples uh, for for reason finding and and changing beliefs through reasons. But it, it should be possible to to represent also those revolutionary changes uh, on a grander scale, so to speak, in our in our epistemic uh, scheme, yeah? and where we find reasons for giving up a paradigm and accepting another paradigm, yeah? even though it's difficult. So, as I said, the the, the paradigm paradigm relative notion of truth. Uh, most philosophers are much deterred by that that idea, and I wouldn't accept it either. <coughs> the lady there in the yellow jacket. Hi, from your academic work, what would be the top three practical applications I could take back top into my work tomorrow? Well, academic work. The top three application. The top three applications. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, okay. That was the last chapter of my book. Yeah? Uh, 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 on two days ago, uh, what's what's a law? What's an empirical law? Yeah? Uh, uh, somehow, uh, well, scientists apparently know what what, what that is, yeah? but philosophers don't, yeah? and it's a big discussion in philosophy of science going on. Um, what that is, what a natural law is at all, <coughs> and there I have proposals to make. Yeah? The most important thing, perhaps, is, uh, and I, I talked about that two days ago in the philosophy department. Uh, the most important thing, which, which I'm really, I mean, which was really, uh, in effect, the reason uh, starting all that ranking theoretic business 30 years ago, was uh, the theory of causation. Yeah? What's causation? It, it's a huge topic in philosophy, yeah? uh, and it's despairing. Uh, and my observation in the 70s was that we have very, very sophisticated theories of probabilistic causation. Yeah? or the difficult topic for everyone, for all sciences, difficult topic, the, the, the connection between uh, causation and correlation. Yeah? Well, what's that precisely? Yeah? Uh, so in, to which extent can we make causal inferences from correlations, yeah? uh, which we can observe? Uh, so, uh, therefore, there were very refined theories of, of probabilistic causation. Yeah? And the determinist theories of causation, they couldn't keep up. Yeah? At all, yeah? they were relatively primitive, so to speak, yeah? um, compared with these probabilistic theories. But that is a shame. Our original notion of uh, causation is, of course, a deterministic one, yeah? so to speak. Yeah? And the idea of probabilistic causation is very recent, yeah? only enforced by the quantum uh, uh, the physical phenomena. <coughs> and uh, that kind of theorizing enables you to, to uh, construct a equally uh, ramified and sophisticated theory of deterministic causation. Yeah? So it's it's not not well accepted in, in the in the community 
because it's so subjective, yeah, it's so thoroughly humane, yeah, and uh, uh, most people think Hume is just crazy. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not acceptable what he says. Yeah, but I think that's false. Yeah, uh, and so the, the theory of causation would be about the most important application of all, all that uh, ranking theoretic stuff. And then another important thing is that, that I would wish that the so-called traditional the traditional epistemologies, they would uh, uh, take, uh, take notice of that, yeah? because it, it has also, I think, the potential of clearing up quite a lot of mysteries in traditional epistemology. Yeah? But those are people who are not working formally. Yeah? And if you want to study my book, you have to study mathematics, uh, the mathematics. Yeah? So it, it's difficult to, for them to read it, but it, ha- it would have the poten- a lot of potential, I believe. Yeah? Um, perhaps... Uh, who asked me in 10 years again? <laughs> we will see. I have one, I have one, want to take one more question before yeah, that. Yeah, so sure. we'll stop at two applications. And th- so it's the gentleman over here. Um, I apologize if this is a bit uh, away from, from your aim with, with the paper. I realize it's the philosophy of science. Uh, yeah discussion, but uh, I wonder if you address at all aesthetic truths and, or in the role of aesthetics in truth. Oh, I didn't get this. Sorry, I, I wonder if you address aesthetics at all. In, aesthetics? In, yes, in the role of aesthetics in truth, uh, specifically in, in relation to your, your early claim that beliefs are only shifted by rational uh, bases for movement to another belief, yeah. um, and how potentially the, the involvement of aesthetics in that could destabilize that particular belief. Oh, uh, there, I'm sorry. I, I must disappoint you. That aesthetic, aesthetics is that philosophical discipline which is furthest away from my philosophical interests. Uh, so, um, <laughs> uh, uh, But aren't you moved like by to, beautiful wait arguments? Wait a minute. I like to, to experience beauty, but not to theorize about it. I think that that's somehow the basic uh, basic attitude. I think. Yeah. So, so that, that's somehow a practical affair. Yeah. It's it's not a theoretical challenge to me. The beauty. Yeah. It's uh, and so so aesthetics is. I mean, I mean, uh, uh, aesthetics in the present day understanding. Yeah. I mean, I was always confused uh, about. The first part of Kant's critique of pure reason is also called aesthetics, uh, uh, but not in our, our uh, contemporary sense. Yeah? It's aesthetics, in this, it's theory of perception, let's say, or something like that. Yeah? What are unshowing intu- intuitions in the Kantian sense, uh, but that's not about, uh, in the modern sense, aesthetics. Uh. So beautiful beauty is, for me, not a... Uh, and, and I, uh, would have no idea whatsoever how to relate that epistemological stuff with, with any aesthetical stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, I, well I, I'm afraid our, our, our time doesn't allow us to resolve the problem of beauty as well as the problem of truth and rationality, so yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to have to stop there. Um, there is uh, the award ceremony for, the, for, the, for the, the book that is following immediately from this and which will take place in the Shaw Library, which is on the sixth floor of the old building. Uh, we will be able to move to the more celebratory part of the evening. But uh, for now, uh, just join me in thanking our speaker for an extremely interesting talk.